Good evening, welcome to the ENO, welcome to the Colosseum, and welcome to Salome, Zalome. Um, I was thinking when I was leaving home this afternoon that the, this theater, the Colosseum, I think it opened in late 1904, and Salome opened in late 1905. So it's very appropriate that we're going to be doing Salome in this very uh, building. And um, it's wonderful that they're putting on a new production of Salome, uh, I think opening on Friday week. It's one of the very few major works, operas, written in the 20th century that's been continuously on the world repertoire from that day to this. And I think that's to its uh, great credit. Um, the cast, the orchestra, the production team, everybody is very deeply into rehearsals at the moment. And so I'm very grateful that we have a, a, a panel of half a dozen people who are working flat out, and yet they've managed to find the time to be with us here this evening. So many, many thanks to them. What I want to do is simply to introduce the work, say a little bit about Strauss, about Salome, about the nature of it. Some of you will know the work well, some of you perhaps less so. And something about the period in which it was written, the style, the origins and whatnot. And then I'm going to hand over to the real experts who are here and in each case introduce them and ask them to tell you a little bit about what this particular work and this particular production means from uh, their particular perspective. Salome, as I say, uh, written in the early 1900s, had its first public performance in 1905. Um, you'll, even if you don't know the work very well, you'll know all about the, 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 the dance of the seven veils, probably, that comes towards the end, but it's an awful lot more to it than that. It's a story that goes back initially to biblical times. It gets referred to in a couple of the Gospels, very, very briefly, and then in more detail by, by uh, the, the historian Josephus, who actually mentions the name of the Princess Salome. But it's really, it's what we need to concentrate on is the late 19th century. Oscar Wilde writes a Salome play in French, not sure whether you'd ever, let me put my notes down, I think I know what I'm saying, and if I don't, tell me, shoot me down, cut my head off if I get it wrong. Um, Oscar Wilde wrote a play in French, um, hoping that Sarah Bernhardt would perform it. It was a difficult thing because it, it contains three very dangerous topics, blasphemy, overt sexuality, and murder. And you know, in the 1890s and so on, you know, people were a bit sensitive to all that, and maybe the French would put it on, he wasn't sure. Um, it proved to be a, a, a difficult work to get produced, and in fact wasn't uh, until quite a while after uh, his, his, his premature death. Um, the story, very simply, and it's one that was, had been built up earlier in the 19th century, Flaubert, the man who wrote Madame Bovary, wrote a, um, a story about uh, Herodias, a character whom we'll hear more about in a moment. There's a famous painting of Gustave Moreau of Salome looking at the decapitated head of John the Baptist. Uh, Klimt does a painting of Judith and the decapitated head of uh, uh, Holofernes, another sort of biblical feminist murder, if you like. I use the word feminist, which perhaps I should and perhaps I shouldn't at that time. Uh, you know, we are marking at the moment various anniversaries of suffragism and the vote. 
women, women on stage. I mentioned Sarah Bernhardt. Uh, there are many famous, powerful women actresses, as we used to say at that time, Eleonora Duza, the Italian one, Ellen Terry in this country. And women were beginning to dance openly on stage, publicly, Isadora Duncan. Freud is writing about women and their um, uh, subconscious sexuality, hysteria, dreams of sex, and so on. Dangerous subjects, very much part of that latish 19th century, where we look back artistically, we often use the word decadence, death, destruction, you know, Dracula, uh, Dorian Gray, uh, Heart of Darkness, uh, and a great deal of music, painting, etc., that goes along with this. It's also a period where the arts are packed with something that now is utterly unacceptable, which is Orientalism. I almost daren't say this, you know, if you, if you, ladies and gentlemen, if you want a safe space where you will not be offended, please leave now. Um, I'd be so careful. But, you know, just think, forget the paintings and the novels, just think of the operas that are about gorgeous, swivelly, dusky maidens throwing off a clothing or two uh, from that period. Samson and Delilah, for example, a, a very famous... Um, uh, Massenet wrote a, 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 an opera, Thais, but he also wrote Herodiad about Herodias and, that, and the whole um, uh, Salome kind of period. There are many of The Pearl Fishers by Bizet on Aida. So there are many aspects of this opera which were very exciting and dangerously so around the turn of the century when just after Oscar Wilde wrote the play and just before Strauss gets around to writing it, uh, which would be difficult and unacceptable to us today. Our sensitivities are, are, are deeper and different. And that therefore it's an interesting opera to have to try and produce, to direct, to act, to sing in 2018. Another couple of words or so, and then let's um, in, uh, invite the, the, uh, the real experts to talk about it. Um, when I say it's by Strauss and it's put on in 1905, remember that Strauss has already got a considerable reputation, not yet really as an opera composer, he's done a couple that didn't work very well, but as a composer, very much in a kind of consciously post-Wagnerian style. His father, was a horn player in the orchestra that, that put on a lot of the premieres of Wagner works in Munich, conducted by Wagner. Wagner and, and, and Franz Strauss's father didn't like each other, but they respected it. Wagner didn't really like anybody, uh, unless they had either a lot of money or a gorgeous wife who was available. Um, but Strauss, our Strauss, grows up knowing that as a musician, he's in the shadow of the great Wagner. And you either have to completely overthrow it, or move on from it from within that general kind of Wagnerian language. Something we'll ask Martin Brabens to talk about perhaps in a moment. Uh, Richard Wagner becomes known, almost labeled as a joke, Richard II. Um, he's not Wagner, but he's very much at this period, certainly, in the, in the following in the, in the wave of that. And his very next opera, also based in ancient times, 
Also ending with a spectacular, rather wild dance is Electra, also very much in that kind of post-Wagnerian idiom. So a lot to talk about this evening. Um, I'm very thrilled that the production's coming. Uh, and I'd like to start by introducing not only the, 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 uh, the, the, the music director of e English National Opera, but the person who's going to be conducting Salome. Welcome and thank you for being here, Martin Brabins. Thank you, that was a wonderful introduction, wasn't it? Thank you, Daniel. Well, I've been conducting Salome all day today, so it's absolutely exhausting, I can tell you. We had a wonderful uh, three-hour orchestral rehearsal this morning, and then Sue and the rest of the cast joined us this afternoon for a zitz, and Glenn's played about 2,000 notes per hour for six hours. Glenn's a violinist in the orchestra. Uh, it's just the most extraordinary score to get one's head in inside. And many of what the things that Daniel talked about influence the, the complexity and the colouring of the score. One thing particularly, actually, is the Orientalism, because that leads to a certain harmonic uh, complexity and harmonic uses of different scales. So the whole tone scale, if, you, if any of Sue will sing you a whole tone scale now. <laughs> no, she won't. Uh, so the, he, he, he deliberately colours the, the harmony with these very, what would have been very exotic sounds at that time. And it does lead to a, a, a real extension of the, the language, the harmonic language of Wagner. So he emancipated the dissonance with the Tristan chord so bar three of Tristan uh, and Isolde. And from there, music, after that chord, music was never the same again. But uh, Strauss took that much, much further and became obsessed with finding new colours and new harmonic languages. So not only do we get the Orientalism, we also get quite a lot of examples of bitonality, so two keys going on at the same time which can be quite awkward for singers, can't it? I mean, one, one section, uh, your Kanan's in one key and uh, Herodias, who is completely in another. And the way they, they find their notes is, 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 is a real challenge. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. <laughs> it's not a miracle when you've got artists of this caliber. The sounds that he creates with the orchestra, I mean, he, he really, Strauss took the, he, he's renowned as a genius, as an orchestrator, and it really is unbelievable what... I can't imagine how much time and energy it took him to actually just write the stuff down. You know, it's, it, it's so complicated. He uses an instrument called the heckle phone in this piece. Anyone ever heard of a heckle phone? So the heckle is a very well-known bas German bassoon maker, and ma many bassoonists play on heckle bassoons now. And I think, I should have done some research, I think Strauss invented, in a way, R Philip will explain, because yeah. he knows everything. <laughs> I think Strauss invented this instrument. So it's, it's, an, it's a big oboe, but it sits from here. You know, oboe's usually about that big. This one goes from the player to the floor, and it's an octave lower in sound, in pitch, than the oboe. So it's a little bit more like a bassoon. It's played by a bassoon player in our orchestra. So he actually needed to invent new instruments to create the sounds that, that he, he wanted. 
there are masses of solo lines within the orchestra. For ev virtually every instrument has a moment in the in the sun, and there's incredible writing for the for the brass, the horns particularly with Yukanan, and it's just a, every page you turn to, there's something new in the score. So I mean to say it's post Wagner, it's, it's true, but it, it's gone so far beyond Wagner in terms of orchestral palette and uh, harmonic palette. Vocally, I imagine, and Sue will be able to tell more about this, the, the roles are not easy. They're, they're really very demanding. And when you've got such a huge orchestra in the pit as well, that, that doesn't make life any easier for anyone. So from the, many perspectives, this is a, an extraordinary piece. From my personal perspective, it's an absolute dream to conduct this music. It's conductor's music, you know, this kind of, it's what we, that's why we do it. And it's actually, it's probably orchestral players enjoy playing it too, yeah. beyond the fact that it is very, very complicated and difficult. It's just a joy to be involved in, the, in making these wonderful, wonderful sounds. So it's, it's so far so good. It's been a, an absolute journey of discovery and a very, very happy, we've had a lovely, happy, rehearsal room over in, uh, in uh, where was it? South Kensington, somewhere over there in, uh, in this room. But actually, it was a lovely room because it had light, had daylight, and we, we had, a, had a very nice rehearsal period, but we're so excited about getting on stage on Thursday. So I think it's also, I mean, post-Wagnerian in the sense that there's all sorts of little themes that yeah. keep, ba -ba -bom, you know, that keep recurring and yeah. then get orchestrated. Yes, there are leitmotifs galore in this piece. I mean, there are, there are probably more than Wagner has yeah. in, in his operas, but yeah. you, you, you'll recognise them. And they are, they, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but in, in a sense, the orchestra tell the story. They really have, you know, whatever the text is, Strauss responds to it. So when you hear when you, when they're talking about snakes and vipers, you hear the snakes and vipers in the in the orchestra. And when when he talks about lust and wine and all the all the things that he seems to talk about quite a lot in this piece, you hear that. You hear a certain effect that responds directly to to the to the text. And it, it's it's just a, a work of pure pure genius. And you know it's just why we why we do what we do, isn't it? Glenn, do you um, play uh, sex and lust or vipers and adders or chopping heads off? What's it like from the uh, point of view of a violinist in the orchestra? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I mean, the bit I, I, for us particularly is the winds when we're, we're in, um, in the scene with Herod and Herodias and um, we've got these chromatic scales, you know, absolutely. It just sounds like wind whistling through. It's, it's extraordinary. So, uh, I mean, the... the the thing I notice as well is, as a string player, um, it's really interesting, even before we got to any orchestra rehearsals, there's so many notes, you just have to practice at home by yourself. But you're trying to work out what the tempos are, and even then you put on a recording, and actually your own line you really can barely hear. I was looking through a vocal score, it's going by at such a rate of knots, and. Uh, so, and a lot of people were finding this, like, I don't even know what I'm meant to be doing, what I'm meant to be learning. But that's the thing with Strauss. He creates this extraordinary, it's like a tapestry that, um, and I mean, he, he um, wrote these 10 rules for conductors, um, one of which was, actually, it's interesting, because Martin is, Martin's that ilk of conductor, actually. Has anyone, there's some, 
videos worth seeing of Strauss conducting, completely impassive, you know. And, uh, and um, he said in one of these rules that the conductor, sh the conductor shouldn't sweat, the audience should do that. And it's... Uh, <laughs> and, but you see what I mean? There's so much going on that, you know, you just... And never look at the brass because they don't need encouragement. <laughs> the... Um, <laughs> Uh, the other thing he said, interestingly, was you conduct Salome and Electra like fairy music. And I think there's an element that there's so much going on. And you just, if you're trying to bring out your own line all the time, no, no one will hear anything, let alone the singers. And, and you just have to let it flow and go. And uh, so, so it's fascinating for that. Uh, but then also as a string player, we had a string sectional, and actually a lot of it, the string stuff, it's kind of like playing, there's waltzes, it's, it's quite light, it's frothy, you could be playing Rosencavalier at points. But then when you get to the rehearsal room with the whole orchestra, and almost immediately, the strings come in on a lovely little tremolo, but then immediately there's harmonies, there's wind plays, like, it's like curdling, it's like curdled milk, there's always something creepy going on around all this, it's, uh, and he absolutely captures that all the time, it's, uh, and then, and then you get the two, well, more, but two particular massive, massive climaxes. I mean, the orchestra, how will fit in the pits, I'm not sure yet. Um, I mean, the line of just clarinet players, I've never seen so many clarinets. There's more clarinets, I think there's many, many clarinets as second violins in this. And, uh, and um, but it's, you know, so then when he unleashes, there's just I think it starts like with it. the clarinet, doesn't it? Going yeah, 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 just yeah, straight up the scale. Yeah. yeah. Like no that. overture, nothing like that. It's like, like uh, it's straight in. It's like a really evil Rhapsody in Blue, the stars, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah. Let's move on to the, the singing roles, and I'll introduce Sue to Susan Bickley in a moment. You'll have seen Sue in many roles here and up the other place and around the world, really. Um, she's playing the part of Herodias. Let me just remind you of the story. The st we're, we're in Judea in early, you know, 2,000 years ago, and Herod Antipas, who I think is the son of Herod the Great, am I right, is hosting a big party in Judea and all some grandees from Rome are there and the rest of it. And his wife, Herodias, who's been married before, and her daughter, Princess Salome, are present, and Salome, wanders out, it's all a bit boring, all these drunken old geezers at the party, and she wanders among the guards, the security people outside, the security detail, um, and she hears this voice from a distance saying very serious, earnest things about sin and so on. And she manages to persuade one of the, the guards to in, let the owner of this voice, who is Johannahan, do you call him Johannahan? What do you call him in English? Johannahan? Johannahan, John the Baptist, essentially. He's allowed to come out, he's imprisoned initially in the Oscar Wilde play in a cistern or a well. I don't know about what this production will be. And she's transfixed by him, and he is appalled by her, and she goes on about his beautiful dark hair and his skin and his mouth and so I mean what could be worse and he's absolutely appalled and he's imprisoned by Herod partly because he's also been criticizing Herodias she's been adulterous and she's broken this and that and the other thing and the voice of Christ 
the Son of Man is coming forth from the wilderness and sinners will all be punished. And that just makes Salome all the more excited. Herod uh, comes down and can't take his eyes off Salome, which annoys the hell out of Herodias, as I'm sure we'll hear in a moment. Um, and meanwhile, there are a bunch of, of Jews squabbling theologically. Another thing, how do you portray that in 2018, not like you did in Germany in 1905? Difficult, interesting aspects of production we'll hear about in a moment. Um, and Herod says to Salome, you know, would you come and eat with me? Come and drink with me. And she says, no, don't want to. His wife Herodias is appalled at the way he can't take his eyes and possibly even his hands after, uh, off uh, her daughter from a previous marriage. And eventually he says, dance for me, Salome. And she's appalled. And eventually agrees to on condition that he gives, us, gives her anything she asks for, which he, she makes him swear on oath. So she does the famous dance using many of the themes we were talking about. And when she's asked, what does she want? She says, the head of your kanahan on a silver plate. And appalling, appalling, she's finally given it. She drools over it. And the very, very end, and I won't tell you, I'll leave others to tell you, but um, officially in the old original productions, Herod suddenly says, kill that woman, and the guards all kill her. End of. Now, Herodias is a super important figure in this opera. She, in a way, is the one who's observing coolly and making and, and shocked by what her husband is doing, trying to discourage Salome from simply being a kind of sex idol for Herod, excited at the end when John the Baptist's head is wanted as the prize. But I shouldn't um, be saying all of that. I should be asking Sue to tell us about it. What's it like to sing the role, Sue, for a start? Because well, you've done it before, haven't you? I have done it. Um, I've done it a couple of times. But um, Herodias is sort of the mistress of the short, sharp uh, riposte, really. She's, she, she just... She does a lot of snapping one-liners, uh, whereas Herod is running around in hysteria and excitement at what's going on. Uh, Herodias is so appalled that she basically will just, she can say it all in one line. So it's quite an interesting part because, uh, because she's sung about quite a lot in the opera. But actually, I probably have... Uh, I certainly have the least to sing of the, all the, of the principal roles, because, but the, it's all spread out in one-liners and, and sort of two-liners. Um, but, uh, but it's quite, it's nevertheless, she is one of the central characters of the, of the, of the whole story. And um, we, I like to think that one of the reasons, and we have discussed this as part of the, the production, one of the reasons she is so appalled at Salome doing a dance for Herod is the possibility that it's a repeat of history and that Herodias had to do a similar sort of dance uh, in her teens and that maybe before her. And so she can see the sort of disgusting nature of this sort of activity going on and and in Adina's production there is the there is the hint that there is another character that this might happen to even post Salome so um so uh that's what 
that's what part of the backstory that we create for ourselves when we're when we're thinking about uh, the relationships of the characters to each other. But I, I've seen Herodiuses who are sort of intimidated by shock at a lot of what they see, and I've seen other Herodiuses who are quite powerful, used to getting their own way, and they're damn well going to this time. Oh, yes, I don't I right, think I, right I would be playing one of those that shrinks that <laughs> away. No, I don't think so. <laughs> um, uh, no, I think, I think Herodias is, is uh, um, certainly in this, in this instance, is, um, is furious and interested. And there's also, I mean, I don't think it happens in the play, it certainly doesn't happen in the opera, but the suggestion strongly in the original story is that it was Herodias who suggested to Salome that she asks for the head of John the Baptist, whereas that, that actually doesn't... I mean, we could make that connection. We haven't quite decided whether we will make that sort of unspoken connection in the opera, but... Uh, but it doesn't actually, it's not actually in the score that that happens. It's, it's a difficult one. Unfortunately, Adina directing isn't able to be here with us this evening. But I would like to hear uh, from Mark, for example, what, what, what's it all going to look like? Um, I mean, it's a difficult yes. thing. It can't <laughs> look like the kind of old-fashioned 1905 Freudian sexy oriental girl stripping off veils. It's got to be much more modern-minded than that, hasn't it? I think so, yes. Adina's <laughs> um, work in Australia, we're both from Australia, but Adina's um, from America, but um, and then has lived in Australia, but Adina's um, work that she makes in Australia and the work that I've been making in Australia as well is very um, uh, kind of stripped back, uh, quite uh, contemporary-influenced, um, Kind of a reworking of classic images, or a, um, a modernising, or a, um, a perhaps a compromised version of a classic image. Um, so this, this when we have been in the theatre all day, so I feel very a bit too close <laughs> to everything. All of my um, the things that I think to say, the things I've just seen, but um, it it's very our space is very vast and very. Uh, very bleak. What I was just watching then in an incredibly exciting way. It's we're using. Uh, most of the Colosseum stage, which, as I understand, is not a regular thing. That stage is enormous. Um, we're thrilled by the cavernous space of it, but um, it's a very, uh, I think, bold, uh, claustrophobic in its kind of vastness world that we've made, uh, with really a, a very big focus on the women in the piece and the... Uh, a, a possibility of looking at this piece in a, a feminist way for now. Yes, I, I was reading, and also online, I think you can watch an interview with, with Adina, and one of the things that she's both said and written is that this Salome is using, uh, if you like, the sexuality or the body as, as, as a form of power, not as being on the kind of timid receiving end of the male gaze, but using it as a way of asserting herself. Um, as indeed her mother does uh, in, in various ways. And that presumably is represented in the production generally. And um, the, the images I've seen of, of, of the design and the sets give me indeed exactly that idea of something vast and yet you're tiny and claustrophobic within yes. it all. Have I, have I got that right? <laughs> yes, hopefully that's exactly right. And just there's a kind of an absence of doors where we've got a great height in the space and everything feels very... Uh, 
clean and like a like a gallery or an abattoir or like a uh, abattoir. Yes. Oh, you got a headless horse, or have I given something away? We do have a headless horse. Um, <laughs> Don't tell anybody. <laughs> um, yes, but it's a delightfully um, looks like candy pink horse, um, like a like a horse a little girl would have in a horrific way. Um, yeah, look, we've, we feel like we've been, we've been designing this show for two years. Um, we have been working fairly consistently on the work for two years, which is a very long time to be working on a work for both of us. We normally work on much, in much shorter kind of time frames. Um, and we've revisited it. And when we look at it now, it is very similar to what we first presented maybe a year and a half ago. And the essence of it is still very much the same. And we've just reduced this down now <coughs> to very clean, iconic... Uh, Images. I think actually, when we look at our piece, there's not a lot of things, but our things are huge. <laughs> our statements are large, but they're, yeah, it's it feels incredibly exciting to be looking at it now, in light of two years of work. But um, yeah. Corinne, you've been working on the 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 the, the wigs, the makeup. You've been working very closely with with, with Mark. Tell us um, what sort of wigs and makeup we're going to see. <laughs> it's very interesting actually because. Um, I was lucky enough to have a meeting with Mark over a year ago now, wasn't it? It was our first meeting. Um, so we could um, just sort of look at the designs, mainly the costume designs, and get a feel for the show. And then later on, probably about six months ago, we started talking about hair lengths, hair colours, and to sort of get a sense of that. So that's great, because that means I can go shopping. And I always <laughs> like going... And going hair shopping is brilliant. So I go and visit the hair merchant and get samples and have a look at that. And we've basically got sort of two themes in terms of colour. So there's a palette of grey and there's a palette of blonde. And within that, obviously, each of the characters has to be quite distinct. So um, we had to very carefully choose the different kinds of blondes, different colours, shades, tones. So they do individually stand out and there's not sort of a, a sort of emerging of all the palettes. We've got lots of different hair lengths as well. Um, it's very simple in the um, styling, though, isn't it? Um, yeah, mainly sort of... Um, various heights of ponytails and stuff. But um, yeah, it's very beautiful. And we've made all the wigs on site as well, which has been really exciting. I mean, Sue's is probably my favorite wig. Sue's is my favorite too. <laughs> favorite wig, yeah. What's, um, what, what's Sue gonna look like on the night? Oh, she's going to look, are we allowed <laughs> to say? Yes. She's going to, she, you're, from what I've seen in the costume fishing, you're looking very glamorous, but faded glamorous. Fade, fade, yeah. <laughs> what can I say? I was born to it. <laughs> but I was lucky enough to source some beautiful shades of grey hair for her. Sorry, it's another giveaway. Um, which was actually uncut, because a lot of the bundles of hair we get have been trimmed at the ends, and this is all uncut. So it would be like taking my hair with none of the trim at the end. So it all goes down in little points. Is, is, John, the Baptist, is John the Baptist going to look really formidable? Ooh, I mean, she, she, refer, she refers to his wonderful dark hair, so far as I remember, doesn't she? I think. He does not have dark hair. Not, any, <laughs> not anymore, no, does well, it's he? Well, it's very, very postmodern. <laughs> it's very postmodern. No, we're still going to cut that one. That's going to be the most exciting one to cut tomorrow. So, um, yeah, we're looking forward to that. We don't want to give too much away. But yeah, he's a very developed character, um, quite disturbing, I think, in mm. some ways, isn't it? Um, mm. There's a lot of emphasis on certain parts of the body, parts of the face. So, um, yeah, that's going to be an interesting one to watch. Yeah. So. And Mr. Stage Manager. What's it, what's it? I mean, you, you've worked on other Salomés in your time, I've been, very different ones. <clears throat> I've been very, very lucky in as much that this will be my third Salome at ENO. And um, I worked, uh, the original production was in nine, uh, 1975, I think, the Hertz production. 
And I did it a little later when it was revived, but that was an extraordinary production. Then I worked on the David Laveau production, which was in the, uh, in the, in the, in the 80s. 80s, thank you. And then this one. And, and it, it, it is extraordinary because the, the, the three, I mean, when we did the Hertz one, there was uh, a lot of nudity. There was, um, uh, uh, there was, uh, Herod had a toy boy. There were courtesans. There were, everybody was very, every group was, uh, there were lots of people on stage. It was, it was quite mad. Nothing happened as far as the, the technical side went. It was just a, a, an amphitheater. It was beautifully constructed and very solid and and then when we went to the David Laveau one um, it was um, basically the, the, the stage was split in half I don't know whether you remember on the one side it was incredibly opulent wonderful carpets and beautiful red wine decanters and heaven knows what else and on the stage left side there was this barren land with a swing in it which was Salome's old swing and uh, it, it was yeah it was a very um, I don't know, it's almost a reflection of the times, the very, very rich and this, this, the, the, the other side of the world. And this, and I think this is what's so exciting about working with Marg and Adina and Lucy, who's the um, lighting designer, is that you think you know a piece um, and suddenly you're, you start almost from scratch and you're shown new things. And th that's what I love about this job, is that you can sit there and you go, I, I think I know Salome, but you don't. And of course, there's always so many ways of, of, of looking at it, appreciating it, and your eyes are open uh, by people like Mark and Adina. And it's fantastic. And we've had, M Martin talks about the rehearsal period. It's been stunning. I mean, sitting six hours a day listening to that music um, with these wonderful singers is, you know, it's fantastic. It's a, I'm very lucky, shall I say. No, it, <laughs> it's, 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 of course, it's a continuous piece without interval. It lasts, what, one hour, 40, 45, something like... 140. 140 or something. Single well, set. Okay. You're not having to... Well, you see, now this is... The, tell me, sorry, Philip, tell us the, more this, about... Sorry, this is the yeah. first... Salome. I can't give things away, which is so frustrating. But this is the first Salome that I've done where actually... I think I can say that we are using the two huge interludes and we are doing things. It's not just done with the uh, singers. We are actually moving things and showing things and I can't really say much more, but please come and see it because it is stunning. Can I just say I'm the one person in the room who won't see any of this? No. <laughs> so, at least I've heard about it. So. <laughs> No, no. <laughs> tell, tell, tell us, Mark, what you're going to say. Did you say more? Oh, no, I was just saying I, I always... Um, I always... Um, I, let, I let Martin and musicians down because I never speak to the music and we, we've created a space which we think can house a massive sound incredibly well. But I'd always, I always forget that the orchestra actually never seen the show. <laughs> you're all too low. Um, yeah, I forget about that. I said I'll show it to you on my phone. <laughs> what I'd like to do, if it's OK with you on the panel, is open the questioning to the floor. Many of you will know the opera, some will, some won't. Speak clearly, I think there's a roving mic. Um, if you want to tell us who you are, that's fine. And remember, th this opera is one which contains some very forceful and formidable questions. So I want you to try and live up to the spirit of this particular work, as I've said before. Okay, Jenny, do you want to see if anybody would like to kick off the questioning? Gentlemen here. 
I'm Adam Scott, and I have to declare an interest as an Anglican clergyman. And it, it, it's, it's very interesting, because often Herodias is seen as the villain of the piece. Uh, but in fact, they're all, they're all four of them victims, in, in a sense. And I just wondered how far you think that this is actually more sympathetic to Herodias than the classical view of Herodias. Oh, well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think, I think it is more sympathetic, actually, despite the fact that she does um, bark and snap. I think, I think there is an element of 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 being more sympathetic. Um, uh, it is one of those operas where you actually do come away not really liking anybody in it. I mean, so um, uh, I think. Hmm, I think I think there is a, a strong possibility that she's that she is that you would sympathise a bit with her, but because Herod in this production is absolutely horrible, he really is. Uh, he's he's re really pretty nasty, and um, and uh, and I think you I think with the ultimate scene. Uh, uh, which is, may not be, well, it won't be what you're expecting, actually. Uh, there's a little bit of a spoiler there. Um, then uh, <laughs> then uh, you could have some sympathy with both Salome and Herodias, yeah. Actually, none of the characters, like you say, none of the characters are really very nice. <laughs> Perhaps Narabot, who dies sadly very early on in the piece. He just dies of, I don't know, frustration, love, shock, call it what you like, because he seems so passionately in love with uh, Zalame, and she just, she then forces him to reveal Yokanan after Herod has said, no, that can't, can't do it. And of course, she tempts him and teases him into doing it, and he does, and then he dies, the poor chap. So don't forget him. You know, when you, you can go out of the opera, think, "Oh, he was the nice guy." He, he's uh, the yeah, the the, the, the Syrian guard yes, from very early chats on. Up, We're not yeah. sure who he was. I mean, we had lots of conversations whether he was a childhood friend of Salome. Of course, he isn't historically. But does Herod slip over his blood? Well, he, who knows? We hope. We hope if he Have does, he doesn't hurt out. himself. Hi, hello. Um, you talked about there being a cavern, using the cavern of the stage. The only thing that I thought, oh, does that mean we're not going to be able to hear anyone because the sound isn't going to come out? I know, we've, um, yeah. it's been a hot topic of discussion. <laughs> um, yeah. look, we, we, think, we think we're mindful to that. We've, um, there, the stage goes through several changes um, and we are really aware of making sure that the performers are very present and forward in that space, but also we think architecturally that uh, for the most part we're catering to a, a, a good sound is what very much what we're hoping. But yeah, no, it's it's an everyday an everyday thing. That yeah, we it's a huge space and we do talk about it a lot. And But there's only one scene that uses the, the big, the mm. cavern. In fact, yeah, mm. a couple of them, people are really very far forward. Mm. So we are aware. And it's been great to work with Martin actually challenge. talking about those kinds of things being um, not, uh, I'm not new to opera, but I'm, but all of those things, especially venues when people know venues so well and idiosyncrasies and sound and how that might differ from one space to another and 
um, it's been really wonderful to work with Martin on that, to actually really know that we feel like we're in a safe place. Good. Hopefully. Thank you. On the, on the subject of sound, um, of course, it's being done, of course, in English, and the text will be above the stage. <clears throat> but it's one of the very, very few operas, I think, that was set absolutely to the words of a pre-existing play. I mean, it had to be reduced a bit, but Strauss set it to a German translation of the Oscar Wilde play as was. And I just wonder whether you're doing it to an English text, which is from the English language original version of the Oscar Wilde play. Do, do any of you know that what the I think text it's is? a mixture of things, and we've actually doc, we've changed. It wouldn't words. quite work, would no, it? Musically, we've, we've changed things even in this from the existing translation. We've changed quite a lot to to well, certain words are easier to sing for certain singers. Certain vowels are easier, and on certain notes, it's a very intimate. It's always thing, it's, it? it's always an interesting thing to to, to be doing um, operas in English as English translations, and there's always a process, particularly at, at ENO, because that's what uh, that's what we do is to sing them in English. There's always a process early on in rehearsals where words um, words are changed, and and there's a there's a dialogue that happens with the um, with the the librettist. And the and the translator. Um, it, it, I don't think I've ever done a production where we've gone in and done exactly what was written. And even when in revivals uh, of when when the same um, translation and libretto has been used, different singers have different ways of of singing different words on different notes. And it quite it quite often is helpful to uh, to be able to um, change those and know that your librettist is happy with that change um, to make it uh, more understandable, basically, yeah. But can I ask a follow-up question to that? But I, I credit Wikipedia here, but I was, I was reading that, um, that uh, of course, having been written originally in German, that, um, that quite early on there was a French version produced for which Strauss uh, adjusted uh, and rewrote a bit so that there, there was a distinct French version. And then, of course, you're producing something which is in English. Um, so are, are you able to, 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 to compare yeah, and contrast we, those we change the notes. Just... We change it. You actually change the notes? We change the rhythms, should I say. Yes. I mean, we, if, if because of, you know, if, if Strauss was setting this in English, he, he wouldn't use the same rhythms that he did in German, for sure. Because the, the words are different and the syllables are, in each word are different. So we adjust things, but with huge respect for the score. And that's what conductors do all the time anyway. You, you, this is what Beethoven wrote. You, you can't hear the horns, so you get the horns to play louder. You know, if, if that's what you spend most of rehearsals doing, is making... I mean, what does piano mean, Glenn? Piano means soft, Okay. What does forte mean, loud? Now, what do those... Let's be honest, what does that mean? You cannot... There's not one piano and there's not one forte. There are contexts and, you know, we have to change things all the time. And it's the same with the text in this. We've, we've changed rhythms a little bit. I mean, we added a note for Sue. Make it, we added one whole quaver. <laughs> and I must say, when, when, when I did it at first, hmm, don't like, oh, I'm not sure about that. But now it's 
it's in in the voice, it's in the in what we're doing with the staging, and it works. But there is that initial oh, but that's not what Strauss wrote. But we won't tell you where it is. <laughs> I think, it's great I, to be able to have a dialogue with Martin and uh, and uh, actually also with the with Richard, who's play who's played for all the rehearsals. Um, we we sort of talk, we try things out. Um, so it, it, it it's not. Um, dictatorial at all. I've also noticed playing it, I mean obviously you know the score has very precise things but there is a wonderful flexibility in the whole thing you know that there's you've got these lines with other stuff and the way Strauss writes it all across the bar line there's there's just an incredible flow to it all anyway um, that you know I think those little shifts of you know for the text to work can only be part of that flow, you know, whereas you're sticking to very strict rhythms in that way, you're kind of missing the point. So, so. Yeah. My question is not to do with singing or uh, indeed with uh, music. How have, you, how have you managed to deal with the role of the executioner? Because if you have seen that role in the Royal Opera House, he became almost a star in his own right. Have you been able, because I should have directed that you, Sunda, have you been able to get something as a we real have, We have a star. We have a Thank star. You. You, we won't reveal it, but uh, there is a starring role. Not to alter. <laughs> It's uh, right. not, not in the same way as the Royal Opera House, but the execution is, is quite special. As it is in the score. <laughs> so, yeah, it's very much, you know, you can see people in the orchestra as it comes to it. There's quite a few people going... <laughs> you, you hear it, it's there. It's absolutely there in the music. As I, as I recall, there's a sort of pauses and... Is it going to happen? Mm. Um, mm. What's going? You know all that, isn't it? Just and then also towards the end of the opera, lots of sort of endless trills to make you not quite sure what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. And the extraordinary writing for the double basses at that point—they got uh, you know the lowest instruments of the orchestra. These they're, they're harmonics, which are, you don't press the finger, fall down on the string, and it creates this higher pitch overtones. And it's just amazing writing with the basses, just. It's creepy and, you know, one, it's, it's uh, yeah, and how he thought of it, who knows. But, yeah. Glenn Martin, do we know you're all yet going to fit into the pit? I, I saw the Cadogan Hall and I thought, gosh, this is rather a large orchestra. <laughs> We're slightly concerned, but I think we'll, we'll, we'll make it. So row A is going to be taken out, isn't it? <laughs> Sadly, we haven't got that flexibility. How, how it big, is a huge orchestra. How big is the orchestra? I haven't counted. I mean, 80-plus, uh, I guess. I mean, sadly, the strings are probably one of the casualties. You know, we're, we're using the, you know, the permanent orchestra members in the strings, but we're not bringing in extras because we can't fit them but but as i say with that enormous tapestry you know I, again i'm not not sure of the necessity of it you know so even then it just means we can all float the lines and flow so we've done it before i don't remember i've done it but i can't remember how we fit but we must so hmm. anybody else Yes, well, let's, let's have the lady here before we go to the back of the hall. Thank you. 
Um, you mentioned that this is the third production that ENO has done, was and that you have tweaked some things on the translation. Was there a new translation for this? Or are you using the one from the original? There is a new translation. No, there isn't. Sorry. There isn't. We, oh, hello. Um, no, we're, we're using the one that we, we Tom used. Hammond. Yeah, Tom Hammond. It's a Tom Hammond translation which we used in 1975. But it's tweaked, yes, absolutely. Chris, you want to say something? I was just going to ask, um, perhaps, Marcel, anybody, I just wondered what your reflections were on, I've got a really loud voice, <laughs> <laughs> were on opening this piece, this production, as the start of this season. You know, how do you feel it really sets the tone for the season ahead? Well, yeah. <laughs> we all look at Martin. <laughs> Uh, well, it was Daniel and I planned this season together, and he offered Zalame as a, an early temptation for me, and I could hardly resist. I mean, it's a conductor's dream. So in the sense that it puts amazing music at the heart of what ENO does, of course, it, it's what I, what I want the company to be known for. It's also very boldly theatrical, and uh, the, the approach that Adina and Marg have taken, I think, is is very interestingly and unique. It's, I think, it's going to be a real surprise to people what what they found in the piece, and that, of course, is the other side of uh, ENO, the looking at traditional pieces in a new light. And I think that's what we do better than many companies, and I think it's what we're very proud of, and it's what we want to be known for, and we're unapologetic in the in that in the way we do that. We also, of course, do very traditional, wonderful, lovely productions too of, 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 of things, but we like to look at things in a fresh light. And of course, it sets the tone for the whole season. So we're, we're fingers crossed that uh, uh, it goes off with, with, with a great bang and you'll, you'll all be there to, to support us. And that's a great, we're really grateful for all your support over the years. And, and the season has quite a number of works that feature women in particular. You've got Porgy and Bess, of course, but you've also got Merry Widow, you've got uh, Jack the Ripper with a whole series of opera stars all being the victims of the Ripper coming up in March. So an interesting season coming up with this as the kickoff. I think so, yeah. I mean, that's, we're unapologetic about that too, you know. Half of us are women, so why not, you know. And of course it can showcases the orchestra like nothing on earth is this one. So that's wonderful. Um, but also you're talking about the space and we're talking about fitting in, but of course, you know, that, that sheer scale of it for this building, as you, as you were saying, it just seems so appropriate in so many ways. It's, uh, yeah. Good, well, I think we'll uh, draw things to, to an end. I'm, I'm particularly grateful to our panelists. I say they've been absolutely working flat out. So bravo. <laughs> Bravi, bravi. <laughs> Thank you for being here. I'm enormously looking forward to, to Salome. I'm sure that if you wanted to come up and ask a quick individual question briefly, that is possible. Meanwhile, I look forward to seeing all of you at many, many performances over the season, starting with Salome. So thank you and thanks for having me. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Perfect.